You're listening to The 21st Folio, a podcast about modern Shakespeare productions of stage and screen. The podcast is a subsidiary of The Seventh Row, an online publication dedicated to interdisciplinary film and theater criticism. You can find us on Twitter at Seventh Row with the number seven spelled out or online at seventh-row.com. That's S-E-V-E-N-T-H-Row.com. film are much more layered and nuanced and so he compensates by then having a mallet to your head about like what the play is about or what's going on what the plot points are Ooh, i like that that's a good yeah i get behind that idea i think what bothered me most about the nun film was it, i noticed it particularly early in the film but it, it does reoccur throughout the like the needless cutting between locations in the middle of conversations for the characters. So like, so yeah, some of the early settings where it's, you know, in the castle and all of a sudden it's a different room and the, the conversation is just continuing as if it were a single scene, it just felt distracting and like unnecessarily flashy to me. Couldn't agree more. I could not agree more, but at the same time, isn't that part of the obligation of the film is to be like, we can do this. You can't do that on stage and go, well, why not? Why not take, (laughs) why not go from the ocean to a bathtub because we can, <laughs> but it, it, it breaks the it breaks the the meaning of the scene certainly. Mm. Yeah, I just kept feeling like I know you can, but you shouldn't. <laughs> Would you feel uh, the same way if it was a movie that was not based on a theatrical text? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, possibly less strongly, but I mean, it, just in terms of, and and I mean, it, it's it's comedic, it's somewhat played for laughs, but in terms of like the realism of this conversation I, I, I mean i guess so it works in a place where it's sort of like a the idea that it's just like a fragmented conversation right that like it, it happens here and then all of a sudden you know you can do a jump cut and to a different locale and the conversation almost picks up where it was before uh if that's part of the the meaning of the text and this and the the scene or the, the beat then that you know has has a certain quality of its own but it didn't seem to fit here where it was you know one continuous thought and conversation that didn't seem to sort of drop off and pick up. It's just the the conversation continued with them all of a sudden being transported to a different location. But I, I think it's not necessarily a fair com- comparison because, because when you have a play, it's written for the stage and then it's written with the assumption that, as Nicholas Heitner says really articulately, that a room on a stage is always a metaphor for something else and a room on film is just a room. And so sometimes you have in plays things that are designed to sort of cross locations at the same time and to not be a problem. Like I, I mean, one of the things that I was thinking that ways I've seen this done that I really loved is um, the RSC production of Henry the fourth with Alex Hassel, which I guess is still on in New York or has it already closed? I'm not sure. I think it closed or is closing soon. But in, in, in part two, when um, Henry the fourth is giving his speech about how he can't sleep you see him walking across the stage through the boar's head set. 
and you feel like he's a ghost and that he's sort of talking about other parts of that it it becomes about not just about him being in his castle but about him sort of haunting the stage and his relationship to the other characters and his relationship to the play and so it has that sort of weird location crossing but if you did that on you couldn't just do that on film like you would have to put him in his in his castle and then if you wanted to create some sort of effect you would have to cut between them and it would have an entirely different meaning than just mm-hmm. having him walk downstage where he happens to be walking through the boar's head set one of the things i think that every actor dreams about is using a trap door <laughs> i i just think that's just something that people are like <laughs> it just it i don't know it appeals to you as a human to be like i want to go through a trap door someday did you? Did anyone respond strongly to the use of the trap in in the Globes production? That's very that's very theatrical, and very that's that's stage magic. I really yeah. liked it. It was mm. gorgeous. Just yeah, this like the the idea of enormous Stephen Fry just in this little tiny box <laughs> in the ground is just hilarious. Um, and the the because it was so it was so restricted in that, you know, it's only this tiny little like screen through which you can see Stephen, Stephen Fry's face and uh, pointing right out at the, uh, the main bulk of the audience straight on uh, from the stage and being able to use the kind of like walking behind the, the box at the, at the trap door um, to sort of do things out of his earshot. It was, it was great. It was very good. And just (laughs) allowing that moment for a, Mariah to very cruelly drip wax on, on Malvolio through the bars. <laughs> it was really so, good. I mean, I have a question about this for you that's, that's related. Is I wonder, do you think that Nunn's reading of Malvolio as a much darker reading is in part because he doesn't have a trapdoor? Because there's something about having an actor just having Feste be able to like stand on top of Malvolio and sort of joke at his expense and everybody being so much higher than him that lends it this sort of funny, goofy tone. Whereas if you have to actually go to the actual set and you have to actually see a guy in a dark room, like that's already depressing. Yeah, it does. It does feel like it might just be inherently funnier as a trapdoor. I guess I'm wondering, like, I don't know what the film equivalent would be that maybe they're there that is this similar sort of comic element wouldn't be available to none on film and so maybe that wasn't an option right you'd almost have to leave Mavolio just unseen just sort of like a voice from a from like a dark pit or something but that doesn't quite match with the text you wouldn't be able to fully execute it like Uh, if you see him at all it's going to be sad mm -hmm. yeah whereas like the I mean and and I think the the trap in general is is effective when it's because it's not overused in the globe production they use it you know very sparingly and and I mean, between Olivia's entrance or sorry, Viola's entrance at the very beginning of the play, you see her sort of emerging from the space. And then the only other sort of like keystone moment with it is Malvolio all of a sudden in this in this tiny basement prison. When I was seeing it live, the moment of Viola's entrance was actually much more profound than Malvolio in the trap. When all of a sudden a human being emerged from the floor. It was stunning. Like I got tears in my eyes. I was like, Oh God, <laughs> uh, the trap just seemed like, Oh, that makes sense. Like that's, it was, it was, it was comedic and it was fun. And it, 
made an otherwise potentially haunting and terrible scene funny, which I appreciate in this context. But to see Viola, the first time we, we meet Viola, to be coming out of this trap was absolutely mind-blowing. And in a way, I couldn't really rationalize. I'm like, I, I get how trap doors work. But it just hit me. It just, it just crushed me. Which is, again, stage versus film. Like, you can't really... I don't, I don't know how you achieve that. Is that... Right. I mean, is that film in 3D? Is that what the same thing is? I don't know. But it definitely had an effect on me. But, I mean, like, magic on film, like, you know, magical attempts like that are are much less magic because we've come to expect it. You know that the impossible can happen or effects can be made or whatnot. Right. Uh, but like it, it's the equivalent of magic on stage having sort of something like that happen. Well, also just like, because the stage is like a metaphor, like just a part of the stage can have emotional resonance in a way that like a part of the frame doesn't really, unless you're really, really, really meticulous about doing that in an obvious way. Which is not to say that, I mean, framing has emotional context, but just putting somebody like in, you know, the bottom left of the frame is not going to have the same effect as putting somebody in a trap door and having them emerge from it. I mean, there are other ways of maybe doing that, but it's going to be, you would require something more complex in film to do that. Whereas in stage, you just need, it's like a metaphor of rising up as opposed to on film, you'd have to create some kind of realistic situation in which that happened that you couldn't just rely on the same sort of metaphor. Uh, Dan, when you saw it live, was it a thrust stage or proscenium? It was a proscenium. It was at the Belasco, but they built, (laughs) it was sort of both, I suppose. It was very much a proscenium. It's a proscenium house, but Mm -hmm. they put seats on the stage. So they basically created a thrust in which they, they attempted to recreate the globe inside of this Broadway house. So you had two stalls, stage left, stage right, of 25, 30 people that were sitting on benches on the stage. And then you had your traditional Broadway sort of house. Right. So I, I perceived it as a proscenium stage on which there were audience members seated. But the actors yeah. treated it as a thrust. Right. Right. Well, it's like the, the, the Mark Strong, Arthur Miller play with Ivo Von. Okay, what's it? I can't remember what it's called. Um, View from the Bridge that just got a bunch of Tony nominations. That it was originally, it's a Young Vic production, so they can actually put people all around the stage because it's a completely flexible theater. But then it, it got a West End transfer and they did the same thing. They put people on stage, and I assume that that's how they've staged it. They staged it in, in New York when they did it, is they just put people on stage, which is not the same thing as having somebody, you know, standing in the stall, stalls Correct. all around it. Correct. Because they were seated and they were basically at or above eye level which is so cool when you, when you look at that video i hadn't really ever contemplated the fact that these people who are standing are not just standing in front of a stage like at a concert mm-hmm. but really like kind of leaning like reaching up that perspective has to be and there were a few shots in the film where they they showed you the actors from that front row angle mm-hmm. and it was like oh wow they're gods like <laughs> they're, they're they're huge, but just because you're right there. Well, I wondered. I mean, this is. I mean, we haven't really talked about whether we think it. Because I know Dan, you had huge problems with it as a recording. We sort of discussed it somewhat, but not directly. That 
I mean, for me, it worked. And I wondered if part of the reason it worked is because they had people in the stalls that were standing right up at the stage that they had to be aware of being able to play both for the people in the stalls who are so close and for the people in the balcony that then it didn't feel overblown to me, even though obviously they're theatrical performances. It still didn't feel like, oh, God, they how dare they get so close to people? And they had, you know, medium shots and it didn't bother me. It didn't feel like over the top screaming or anything. Yeah, I think I think my problems stem from the fact that I just don't feel like it's fair to the the artists who worked on it. That they weren't they weren't making a film. They were making a play. Yeah. And that this will, you know, people will go, did you see the Rylands 12th night? 50 years from now. I'm like, yeah, I have it on DVD. Mm-hmm. Or they won't because that won't be a thing then. But like, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I saw it. It's like, that's not what it was. That's not what this was. This, this was a play. It was, when I saw it live, it was magical and transformative. When I watched it for this, I was like, oh yeah, okay, 12th night, got it. And like that, I lost something. And as I should have, because it wasn't directed that way. Like those those artists are capable of making a film, mm-hmm. but that's not what they were doing. Um, so that just it just it just scratched an itch that I didn't want scratched. <laughs> if that makes any sense. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I guess to some extent that's probably unavoidable when you have to translate stage to film. I mean, like for me, compared to other like filmed stage productions that I've seen and that we've talked about in other episodes to this, this one, it seemed the most sort of natural and fluid to me. Like I, mm-hmm. the different angles were helpful and I, and I appreciated them and, and, and it was always a little disconcerting, but a helpful reminder having the, the groundling perspective, looking up at the actors, um, which I think worked very well and they, they used it sparingly. But the, the biggest thing I sort of noticed halfway through that I, I didn't feel like I was missing reaction shots. Mm-hmm. Um, compared you to other productions, really the job of cutting between yeah. medium shots, close-ups, and establishing shots, and so you could really see the blocking too, as they cut to the whole stage a lot. Yep. Like, like the only time I it came to mind was when Antonio's being hauled away, and he calls out Sebastian. Um, like I can't believe you're betraying me, Sebastian. And it stayed on Antonio for that for that scene and for his exit. And I'm like, no, I I want to see how Cesario's reacting to this name drop of her apparent dead brother. Uh, and that was the one right. time where I didn't get the reaction I wanted, but otherwise I felt like it did a good job of either showing the other actor's reaction or letting you get the audience's uh, reaction to a scene overall. Because, I mean, the other the other half of this is you live in New York City, so this came to you, and you could, like, <laughs> see it in your city. And, I mean, I was living in California at the time that this came out, so it was far for me to go to New York or, or to go to London. Craig's in Toronto, which is a bit easier, but, like, yeah. Not with a bottomless pit of money. And Caitlin is in New Zealand, so it's effectively impossible for her to have seen yeah. it. Um, a great point. This is a great point. <laughs> <laughs> so I think for certainly my view and Caitlin's view is it's like, this is a gift because we wouldn't have gotten to see it otherwise. But at the yeah. same time, there's a question of, well, it's, it, I guess we feel like it was important to capture the performance, but did they capture it in the best way is a, is a question mark. And how should they have done it? Like, should they have turned this into a film or would that be problematic? Should they have made it like a hybrid production? Like the RSC did with Greg Doran's Hamlet, maybe, but then you wouldn't have had the groundlings, which were so key to understanding how the production worked and it would have become a completely different beast. And we wouldn't be able to say, Oh, this is interesting how they're interacting with the audience. 
and at the heart, at the very heart of this production was its inherent theatricality. Mm-hmm. So to make a movie about it is like, what? <laughs> like, yeah. It right. just seems like, um, yeah. but it also it was so important that it, it couldn't just be let go. It, yeah. it, it, I should, I'm speaking in the past tense, but like it, it I'm, I'm happy that it exists, but I'm also just like, it's interesting. Uh, to note those conflicting feelings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, I mean, uh, you know, Rylance won a Tony for the role and he wouldn't have won an Oscar, right? Like, it's Correct. a very theatrical performance. And I think, um, so I was thinking uh, about uh, our conversation with Maxine Peake where she talked about this, the difference between um, acting for an audience and acting for the screen and how when you're doing a recorded version of, um, or well, a recorded show for an audience, you have to act for the audience who's there. You can't act for the screen. And I think one thing that really helped this Globe production of Twelfth Night versus the recorded production of Hamlet at, at the Royal Exchange in Manchester was that the audience, because it's the Globe, you you inherently expect theatricality. You just it's the most theatrical kind of setting and to just see the audience in every single shot. Like you can, we can almost never miss them. And um, you can see their that, faces. They're not in yeah, there. Exactly. It's, um, it doesn't feel weird and overblown to have big performances in that, in that particular setting. Whereas it might, when you don't have as strong a sense of the audience being there, like, um, a, a little tiny bit in, um, in Maxine Peake's Hamlet and a lot more in Lindsay Turner's Hamlet um, where it just felt a little bit weirder to like the, not as much of a sense of the audience there. And um, I've, yeah, it's I've, having seen yeah other productions, recorded productions at the globe. Um, there was in the uh, much ado, their recent last couple of years, much ado. There was a great bit where, uh, well, several great bits where Beatrice actually reached into the audience, um, into the groundlings and like held people's hands for support in a moment. And, um, you just got in the, with the way that, that they film it with the sort of camera angles, you got this real sense that it was almost like you were there as well. You were standing at, for a second, you were put in the same position as, as the groundlings being able to sort of look up at her and, and look up at Benedict being ridiculous, and and yeah, I've got the same sense here with um with this production. Well, it gets back to to clowning, I suppose, in the sense that the the characters exist and for the audience, and that their life's breath is the audience's approval. And there's that great, I remember, uh, great piece of advice which I just hold in my heart's core which is, you know, a Shakespearean character never asks the audience a question without the hope that one of them has the answer. And that's that's the relationship between a character in in the stage versus a film. So when Hamlet turns to the audience and says, to be or not to be, this is not a rhetorical question. Then, like, let me, let me set up my monologue, to be or not to be. No, it's like, seriously, can someone tell me the answer to this? Should I live right now or die? Like, it makes it so much more immediate, which is really appealing, I think. <laughs> or not. <laughs> you've, you've stunned me into silence with your profundity. Ah, well. 
Uh, this is where it works better if you can flattered. see me because I'm just nodding. <laughs> <laughs> what? Well, you know, that's the, same, the same thing happens with, to flip it to comedy, uh, Stephen Fry has in the Glow production, should I play with my, and someone laughs because they're like, oh, dick joke. And he, like, <laughs> he holds up his fingers like, no, 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 my joke. <laughs> and then it's a bigger <laughs> laugh because that's just yeah. the character recognizing like, I'm here. I'm talking to you. This, I'm not just talking to the air. I'm talking to these people, um, which I don't know. There are some moments with Olivia where they turn uh, soliloquies into voiceovers. Yeah. And it just seems it just seems obvious. It just seems like, well, is there another choice? Is there something else? I don't know. They um they do that with Viola too in the in the nun film. Um just have little moments where someone transitions very quickly from speaking into into voiceover. And yeah, I don't know, some, sometimes it feels I don't think it bothered me as much with Olivia because I think it felt like we were just getting her thought process and she was so kind of wild and all over the place. Um, especially just sort of immediately post meeting Cesario. But, um, the, there's a bit where it, it trans, I think, I think it's, it's the, you know, and yet a baffle strife who I woo myself would be his wife line, I think is in voiceover and in, in the known film. And it, yes. it just kind of, I don't know, it didn't work maybe for me. Cause I kind of love that line a lot i i really like the rhyming couplets <laughs> to end the scene and um it just felt like they were trying to take it out of the reality of the scene because it didn't ring true or something and i just think they should have gone with it just have her like sort of mutter it to herself as she walks away yeah, yeah. that that scene troubled me that seemed because there was there were so many opportunities they had that scene played right next to the ocean where her brother died in her mind and we know he didn't die but like in her mind that's right there and she's just like making jokes and then they do it one of those change of location smash cuts and it's like are we your lady and it's like what the hell is this like <laughs> <laughs> mm, yeah yeah i mean i think the voiceover versus delivering into lens versus like all of the what the options are for how you deal with soliloquies is a big question, which we should do an anthology episode on, because it's something that's come up a lot. And there are ways in which I've seen I've seen films where they do some of them. Some of the soliloquies are done as internal monologues. Some of them are done directly into lens and they all work for me and I can't necessarily explain why. And then sometimes it just feels like really awkward, especially when it's in the middle of a speech where it's some of it's in their head and some of it is spoken aloud and why, why have they done it? Why have they moved it in the middle? But that's definitely one of the challenges I think with trying to adapt Shakespeare for the screen. And it seems like a lot of the time when you have somebody talking to the audience, people are like, Oh, well, we'll just put it in his voiceover. And that may or may not work or it might work, but have, you know, sacrifices. Or if you see too many Shakespeare films in a row, you're like, ah, uh, do they really need to do it this way? Couldn't they find a new way of doing it? yes please and that's the end of this episode of the 21st folio next part of this discussion will be available to download on monday 
to keep up with the latest episodes, subscribe to the 21st Folio podcast on iTunes. For show notes and more information about the podcast, please visit 7th-row.com. That's S-E-V-E-N-T-H-R-O-W.com. Thank you.